Uh, we have been in a series that we've just started on First and Second Samuel. And uh, let me catch you up to where we've been. This is a book that starts in the dark days of Israel. It's the time of the judges. Judges ends by telling us that there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so these are dark days. But in the midst of the darkness, we see that God is at work. It starts with a woman named Hannah, and in her, in her, in her desperation, in her barrenness, God chooses her, and He, He brings new life in her life and through her to Israel. God gives her a son named Samuel, and this son is going to be a prophet. We also heard about God's call of Samuel. But as God has been working with Samuel, he's working with him still in the midst of, of the dark days of Israel. And so that's where we pick up the story this week as we look at uh, the story of Eli's house, Eli the priest, who Samuel grows up under. Let me pray for us as we look at this passage. God, we need to hear from you, your strong voice, your comforting voice, your powerful voice. Especially, Lord, many of us have been deeply wounded uh, by the realities that this text brings up. Would you comfort us with your truth and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, some of you probably followed a couple years ago the saga of Larry Nasser that involved Larry Nasser. Larry Nasser was um, at the top of his career. He was an osteopathic doctor. He had contributed to at least six peer-reviewed research papers he had his own patented ankle bracelet. He was on medical boards across the country and especially in Michigan. And he was considered the best at what he did. He was so good that he was able to serve as the doctor of the US gymnastics uh, team, Olympics team. And he used that position, unfortunately, tragically, to take advantage of young athletes. One of the things that was so hard for those of you who, like me, watched some of the trials and were seeing what was happening, one of the things that was so hard about it is to see how much he had gained the trust of these young athletes and how here was a person who was supposed to be helping them and he was hurting them. And not only that, not only that, but the corruption that infiltrated the institutions that surrounded him and that propped him up and allowed for his activity to go on. Well, it was, it was crushing to hear about. I tell you that story because 
In the passage today, we are, we are introduced to abuse of power and corruption of leadership. And it's not only medical form, it's not just in medicine or in politics or it's not just in education, but we find here and we know that it also exists in religious institutions, even the church, even the Old Testament church, Israel. I want to start by, we're introduced by, to this scene in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. It says that Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Now, it's a little confusing what's going on here, so let me try to paint a picture for you. In the Old Testament, a worshiper would bring their offering to the worship center. When they come to the worship center to bring that offering, a portion of that offering was to be burnt up as, as an offering to the Lord. A portion of that offering was given back to the worshiper that they were able to eat as a fellowship offering with God. It's Our version of this is communion. But a portion of that offering, a portion of that offering was given to the priest because they had no way of sustaining their life and their livelihood. But Hophni and Phinehas, they didn't like that arrangement, and so what they were doing was they weren't just taking a portion of the offering. No, rather what we find in verses 13 and 14, that they were taking this big three-pronged fork, and they were going on a shopping spree, sticking it into every cooking vessel that they could find. They could not get enough. And, and, and if that wasn't bad enough, then what they were doing is when a worshiper would say, whoa, 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 let's wait till, let's wait till, the, till the meat is cooked and, and God gets the smoke offering, then what they would do, well, they wouldn't do it because they kept their hands clean. This is how it always works. They got one of their lackeys to do it. He would go and he would give the worshiper a shakedown and intimidate them and threaten them with physical violence if they didn't give up the offering. Now, this didn't just happen once or twice. No, rather, we learn that this was such a common occurrence that verse 29 tells us that Eli and his sons were getting fat off these offerings. And in the ancient world, to be fat, was, was, uh, that, was a, that was a great accomplishment because there wasn't a lot of food around. But there was plenty for Eli's and his sons now, just to give you a picture of what this might be like, we just took a Christmas offering during Advent, and we had a box sitting over there. Imagine if you were coming in, and when you came in, you were stopped by one of the ushers. And uh, one of the ushers stopped you. Of course, Joshua, I wouldn't do it. Joshua was giving them the nod. And Joshua was giving them the nod to make sure that you took out your checkbook, wrote a check, and stuck it in the offering. And then they wanted to make sure that they got to see exactly what number that was. And then they said, are you sure that's all you have? Let me check your bank account. And then if you said, oh, 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 oh they said no. And then they threatened violence against you. And then after all that, what if that offering didn't go to a charitable cause, but it went to, well, Joshua and I's new homes in the Bahamas. That's what was happening. And it gets worse. 
In verse 22, we learn that the women who were serving at the tent of meeting were that they were having uh, that they were having illicit sexual relations with the women who were at the tent of meeting. Now, commentators will ask the question, was this consensual or not? And we don't know, and that's what they'll say. Listen to me. If the Me Too movement has taught us anything, it should have taught us this. That once power dynamics are entered in, that whole concept of consensual gets very fuzzy. These are women who are working at the tent of meeting. That means that Hophni and Phineas were their bosses. And not only were they their bosses, they are the spiritual leaders of Israel. That means they're also their pastors. It is so horrible. And it didn't just stop with Hophni and Phineas. And it didn't just stop with the Old Testament priesthood. It has spanned the history of the church. I was a history major in college and I studied particularly European history and even more specifically than that, church history in Europe. Around the time of the Reformation, there were popes who had taken vows of celibacy, apparently, that they had more kids running around than the Partridge family. Some of those kids, actually, they gave prestigious positions in government and in the church. Now, the abuses of the Roman Catholic Communion on this front are widely known. But what has become clear over the last 10 years is that it's not just the Roman Catholic Communion. It's everywhere. It's the evangelical church as well. When I was in seminary, there were a bunch of rising stars in evangelicalism. A number of those are out of ministry. Some of those are gone from this world because of scandal after scandal of abuse. You know, when I was young and I would talk to other seminarians, we had these grand plans that we were going to take the world for Jesus. And now my hope, I talk to my friends and our hope is like, can we just preach the gospel faithfully till we die and remain faithful to our wives and have our kids not hate us? Please. That's what I want. The latest, uh, Robbie Zacharias died in... May of 2020. He wrote some 30 books in apologetics. He had a ministry that spanned the globe over 40 years. 
When he died, many people said that he was one of the most evangelical Christian, or one of the most influential Christians across the globe, and no doubt his influence has been great. There were things that came out when he was still alive and during his ministry, but those uh, those accusations were mainly suppressed. But two months after he died, a number more of allegations uh, came out. Ravi Zacharias Ministries, um, they, to their credit, invited a team to do an independent stu uh, study of an investigation into the matter. They weren't going to they weren't going to report anything or publicize anything until the final reports were in. But the preliminary reports came in, and they were so definitive and so conclusive that Ravi Zacharias Ministries felt like they needed to announce the findings, which were that he did engage in sexual misconduct over the course of many years, and that is even more serious than what had been alleged. And it's tragic. And it's not just evangelical leaders, it's also civil rights leaders. We just we just celebrated a big holiday in this country. Martin Luther King. And I know this is going to be very unpopular to say, but the more and more history comes out, the more and more the paper trail we find, as one historian said, the paper trail of his more serious moral failings is now too conspicuous to be ignored. The movie Selma hints at what his biographer makes crystal clear. Pulitzer Prize winning biographer, and that is that King had numerous ongoing extramarital affairs. And it wasn't just immoral, it was also abusive because he was a pastor and a leader. So if we were being consistent, then it would probably mean that lots of statues are going to need to be taken down. Lots of schools are going to be, need to be renamed. Lots of streets are going to be need, need to be renamed. And a holiday is going to need to have its name changed. Because someone who fought for the dignity of 13% of the population who were being discarded and dehumanized himself dehumanized and discarded 50% of the population. Now I bring up these examples actually not to say that these people didn't have incredible influence and do some incredible things. I bring up these examples to show if it's there if our heroes have clay feet, it's everywhere. And what's left? What's left? I mean, when we realize that corruption and abuse infiltrate every institution, every family, every educational institution, and the church, what are we to do? 
I mean, in a group this size, I realize that many of you have suffered, have suffered abuse at the hands of those who are supposed to be helping you. In your families, in your churches, at your schools. I am so sorry. And it is so horrible. And when we realize that, it's easy, and I understand the temptation to grow cynical, to despair, to be hopeless, especially when we see the corruption in the institutions that support these things. And one starts to wonder, you know, can I trust anyone or anything, including God? Because that's part of the tragedy of this. Your parents, your pastors, are supposed to represent God to you. And that's what makes it all the more atrocious. And so here's the question, and I think this text and her world raises How can you trust God in light of the spiritual abuse and corruption in the church? And I think the book gives us, in this passage, gives us some answers. And the first thing that we have to do is we have to look for the subtle work of God in the world. Uh, Did you notice something? If you read throughout this book, there are these scene changes over and over again. We hear about Hophni and Phinehas, and then the narrator drops in this statement about Samuel. Verse 11, Samuel is ministering to the Lord. Verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Verse 26, Samuel continued to grow in both stature and favor with the Lord and with man. It's as if the narrator is saying, in the midst of all the darkness, in the midst of all the gloom, in the midst of all the corruption, don't forget about Samuel. Don't forget about Samuel. And and he he draws our attention in verses 18 through 20 to, to Samuel's clothing. In verse 18, we find that Samuel is there serving before the Lord, and he's wearing a linen ephod. You know what that is? That is the garment that you wear if you are in priestly service. In other words, what God is trying to say is, look, I have not abandoned the priesthood, and there's still faithful priestly service going on. Remember Samuel. And not just that, in the next line we hear in verse 19 that Hannah is visiting visiting Samuel year after year. And what does she bring him? A little robe that she makes for him. Now, that robe becomes very important throughout the rest of 1 and 2 Samuel. That robe is tied to Samuel's prophetic Office. In other words, what God is saying is, don't forget Samuel, I am raising up a prophet. And how is he doing it? Well, think about how Samuel came to be. Through the agony and prayers of Hannah, who cried out to the Lord, and God answered her prayer. And look, God is still blessing Hannah. Verses 20 and 21 say that through Eli, God is blessing Hannah, and he's giving her more children. So you better believe you know what Hannah represents. 
Sheep represents the miraculous, faithful work of God in the midst of the darkness. And she is coming and bringing him a robe year after year as if to say, God is still at work. And God has not abandoned us. He's subtly and he's quietly at work in this world. And he's at work through Hannah. When every other person in positions of leadership have failed, God still has a leader. And her name is Hannah. And over and over again, she is telling Samuel year after year about the faithfulness of God because he's not going to hear it from the priest. Remember, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the corruption, in the midst of the gloom, remember that God is still at work. There's this principle in Pauline studies, that is, those who study Paul, and it's called the, the, the principle of the overlap of the ages. It's this idea that the, that the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light exist both right now simultaneously. That, that the kingdom of darkness is still around, and yet the new creation is already here simultaneously. And one way in which a friend of mine, Douglas Campbell, who teaches at Duke Seminary, one of the ways that he illustrates this is that he gets two speakers and he puts them in his classroom. And he gets some pop music that he can't stand and he puts it in one corner. And then he gets, uh, he gets some classical music that he loves. And this is him. I'm not a, I'm not a classical snob. He puts it in the other corner. And then what happens is, uh, he turns on, first he turns on the classical music, and he asks, what part of this room does this music not cover? And his, his students say, well, it covers the whole thing. They walk around the room, from one end to the other, they can hear the classical music. And then he blares, I don't know, I think he said Adele. I like Adele. He blares <laughs> Adele. And then he says... What corner of the room does this not cover? And they said it covers everything. And then he said, what about the classical music? Where is it? They said, it's everywhere. You just can't hear it because the music that is blaring is just so loud. Sometimes the noise from our news feeds, the noise from the corruption that we see and experience in the church, the noise is just so loud that we have to listen really hard for God's subtle and quiet but pervasive work because God is still faithfully at work in this world. And that is what he is reminding us of here now. So listen. When your sin is just blaring in your ear, remember Samuel and remember Hannah. When the news feed is just too much to take, remember Samuel and remember Hannah. When the next church splits or dissolves or the next Scandal breaks out. Remember Samuel and remember Hannah and remember that God is still faithfully at work in this world. He has not abandoned it. 
That's the first thing. Look for the subtle work of God in the world. Second, accept the necessary word of God in the world. The first time that God speaks in this book is in verses 27 through 36 of chapter 2. A man of God, we're not sure who he is, but that's a term for a prophet, comes and he says, thus says the Lord. And the word that he brings, the first word that we hear, is a word of judgment. It's a word of judgment against Eli's sons. Verse 34 says that they will both die on the same day. And in chapter 4, verse 11, this comes to fulfillment. Both Hophni and Phinehas die the same day. The Canaanites flood in, they come into Shiloh, and they kill them. And one gets the sense, if you read this, that there is no reason that the Canaanites should be there, except for the fact that in God's providence, he is actually bringing judgment on Hophni and on Phinehas. Because if Hophni and Phinehas are so committed to destroying God's people, God must destroy them because he loves his people. See, God's judgment is sure. It is sure. And this is good news. It's good news for victims. Because while it might seem that God is silent, while it might seem that nothing is going on, know this, that the judge of all the earth will do what is right and he will punish every wrong in his timing, in his way. And this is also a word, and I don't know who needs to hear this, but you may need to hear this today. This is also a word for the perpetrators of injustice. Because God's judgments are sure. As Johnny Cash said, you can run on for a long time. You can run on for a long time. You can run on for a long time. But sooner or later, God will cut you down. His judgments are sure. The silence of God is not indifference. The patience of God is not injustice. But it's not just that... Eli's sons are judged. Eli is judged as well. Verse 31 tells us that his entire household will be cut off from the priesthood. Now that seems harsh. Eli is deposed and his entire household is cut off from the priesthood. And you say, well, Eli wasn't doing it. It was his sons. And Eli, he was still blessing Hannah. I mean, he wasn't doing this. So why is Eli judged like this? Well, we know why he was judged like this. Chapter 3, verse 13 tells us exactly why he was judged like this. I'm about to punish his house forever, God says to Samuel, for the iniquity that he knew. For the iniquity that he knew. Because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Eli's sin was the sin of being complicit. The sin of turning a blind eye. You say, well, wait a second. No, he rebuked his son in chapter 2, verse 23. He rebukes his son and he tells them. But listen to me. He knew for a long time what was happening. The text tells us that he heard reports. He kept on hearing reports. He was hearing them again and again. And then when he does rebuke his sons, he rebukes them, but he does not remove them. He could have fired them. But he didn't. 
He may not have been able, as I heard one person say, he may not able been able to stop their wickedness, but he could stop them doing it as priest. And in that power, and not only that, he passively received. He too was getting fat off the offerings, the text says. He was passively reaping the benefits of their extortion. It is so easy. It is so easy to say, well, not me. I didn't commit the crime directly. It is so easy to say, well, I didn't do that. That was someone else. But did we just watch and do nothing about it? I was at our denomination's annual meeting a few years ago. There was a... uh, there was one of the, the founders of the denomination was there. And his name is Jim um, Baird. And Jim died this year, went to be with Jesus. At this, um, at this denominational meeting, we were discussing the sins that the denomination had committed, or at least churches within uh, the denomination wasn't formed yet, but the churches that eventually formed the denomination we're talking about the sins that the church had committed during the civil rights era because the PCA comes out of the South, it's a Southern denomination, and they were talking about what was going on there. And he got up to the mic, 80-something-year-old man, and he said this, he said, I didn't harbor any animosity towards my black brothers and sisters. I didn't do any directly discriminatory acts that I knew of against them. But he said this, but I knew what was happening to them and I did nothing about it. And that's my sin. I was complicit. Eli knew what was happening and he did nothing about it. Why? I mean, why doesn't Eli confront his sons? Why was it too little and too late? Well, just put yourself in his shoes. I mean, why don't we confront evil? I mean, sometimes it's because conflict is not fun. And there's conflict avoidance that we would rather not get into. Maybe it was that Eli was worried about his own reputation or maybe he was worried about the reputation of the institution. He said, who's going to come to Shiloh to worship now? We hear that all the time. Or maybe it was just the fact that these are his boys. And he loves them and he wonders what's going to happen to them. What's going to happen to their livelihood? Like, what is this going to mean for them if the evil is confronted in their lives? Verse 29 tells us, that Eli honored his sons above God. And that's always the case. It's always an honoring of something else, someone else above God that leads us to this complicity. Now still you say the judgment, it still may seem harsh. I mean, Eli's whole family is cut off. But I think... I want you to notice where the judgment starts in verses 27 and 28. It starts by reminding Eli of all the grace that he has received. Of all that God has done for him. 
16th century writer Joseph Hall says, a wicked priest is the worst creature upon the earth because their place is so much holier. See, here's the principle, and it's something that is not easy for me to talk about. Those with more light are judged according to the light they have received. Those with greater power, greater authority, are judged more harshly because of the authority and the power that they have with what they do with it. Not many of you should become teachers, James says. See, for those who have been given to represent God, have been given to all this grace and have all this opportunity, have been, have access to his word, to his truth. But there's a harsher judgment. And I think that's probably what's going on in verse 25 of chapter 2 as well. Notice it says that Eli's sons, and this is very ominous, would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Wait a second. Now that doesn't sound like it was the will of the Lord to put them to death because they would not listen to the voice of their father. It sounds like they would not listen to the words of their father because God had already decided to put them to death. Yes. What do we do with this? Let me tell you what we do. This is not here to pique your intellectual curiosity on questions about the sovereignty of God. This is here to put you in a posture of awestruck worship before the Holy One. Because here's the reality. You can so harden yourself against God that God irrevocably hands you over to your rebellious ways. And that's what happened to them. I have, um, I have tinnitus. People pronounce that different ways. But I have tinnitus. Basically, it's a ringing in my ear. And it, it, uh, it, it started up because the barometric pressures changed in, this week. And it, it happened because I grew up playing drums and riding motorcycles and being stupid. And so now, uh, there's no cure for it. Once you get to a certain point, you cannot fix it. So I just have a ringing in my ear. Sometimes it's very sharp in the middle of the night, uh, comes out of nowhere. And there's really nothing I can do about it. I can't get it back. There's a point before when it just starts that you can get it back, that you can heal. But at some point, it just gets locked and it's irreversible. The same is true with the judgment. The same is true with the judgment. And it's not just Hophni and Phineas. This is true, by the way, let me be clear, for all of us. If it's not in this life, then it is in, the, in death. Because we have no sense, we have no sense from Scripture that there are any second chances after you die. And so you will either, you will either be given over to your rebellious heart in this life, or you will be given over to it at the day of death. And so today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart in rebellion. Today, but there's grace even in judgment. See, why the judgment? Because they are destroying God's people. 
And God is committed to destroying everything that is destroying his people because God loves his people. And Eli, I think he knows this because in chapter 3, verse 18, when Samuel is going to deliver him the judgment and, he's res- and he won't do it, Samuel says, spit it out. I mean, Eli says, spit it out. And Samuel says it. And then Eli says this, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. He accepts the word of judgment because he knows that the judgment, that the judge of all the earth does what is right and what is good for the world. And so Eli, unlike what we'll read about with Saul later, he accepts his his deposition. He accepts the fact that he has been defrocked from office and he realizes that this is good. And that's why I think Eli comes to this place where he receives the judgment and it is grace to him. Because at the end of Eli's life, he gets this news. Your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, have died. And the ark has been captured. And Eli falls over dead, not at the message that his sons have died, but because the ark has been captured. Eli's whole life, he honored his sons above God. But we learn that before his death, he learned to honor God above his sons. And that is the grace. That is the grace. See, there is graceness, grace and forgiveness that is here, and it is on offer. But that does not mean that there are no consequences for sin. For those that hold office in the church, that fail to protect God's blood-bought lambs, they must be removed. I must be removed if I do this for the sake of God's people and for my own sake, because it is better to lose your office and gain your soul than to lose your soul and stay in office. God's word here is a word of grace. Verse 35 says, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. See, God does not leave his sheep without a shepherd. He deposes Eli in his house, but he says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build a sure for him a sure house and he will go in and out before my anointed forever. Now, there is a near fulfillment to this or a couple of near fulfillments. One is Samuel. One is in the book of Second Samuel. But the ultimate fulfillment is in Jesus Christ. The incorruptible one, the great shepherd of the sheep who does not defile God's house and he does not extort God's people rather than rather than pillaging God's people. What he does is he shows what true leadership and true authority looks like. He offers himself for the people. A sacrifice. An offering. And then he gives part of himself to his people to offer back to God in communion. This is what our great shepherd does. And he has come for us. 
He is a mediator that is better than any of the offerings of the Old Testament. He is a priest that is better than any other priest. He is a prophet who speaks God's twofold word of law and gospel to us that we might in the end be saved. So receive, receive Jesus's word today and live. Amen.